0: The lighting was such that as people opened the door of the church and each person came in, it looked like every person was just surrounded with light. They were backlit. And I was so moved. I was like, oh, maybe this is how God feels when when God looks at us. That God sees us surrounded by this like just light coming out of us.
1: On In Good Faith, we believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So join us to listen, learn, and be amazed. In that opening quote from Sarah Jolena Walcott, she talks about seeing the light coming behind people as they entered the place where she was in a place of worship where she was addressing people. We are featuring some people who I think have some of that really bright light. They're trying to find ways to share it, whether through environmental awareness, whether even quilting as a spiritual practice and a social justice outreach. I'm in studio with senior producer, Heather Bigley.
2: Quilter here.
1: And also our student producers, Leah King. Hello. And also Ashton Rowan. Hi, Steve. I was walking on the exhibit floor at the Parliament of the World's Religions in August in Chicago. And I was struck by this series of quilts that were put up, and they were not what you would call your typical geometric patterns. That was because they turned out to be the last words of George Floyd. George Floyd was killed by policemen in the street in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in May of 2020. And so we're going to start with some guests from New Hampshire. Reverend Mark Koyama, he's the pastor at the United Church of Jaffrey in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Also, one of our quilters we'll speak with is Dr. Harriet Ward. She's a scientist, a Christian activist, and the chair of the Anti-Racism Ministry Group in New Hampshire Conference of the United Church of Christ, a fellow quilter, is Kathy Barrett Blair. She works as a preschool occupational therapist for her school district for over 30 years, and she expresses her creativity through fabric, including donating handmade quilts to her local Habitat for Humanity. And I'm wondering, quilter (laughs) Heather, what is it that caught your mind about these quilts?
2: I didn't get to see the quilts in Chicago. I actually went and looked at the quilts on their website, and you can too, at saqm.org. All the quilts are there featured. And what caught me was this idea that's going to get explored about we what we traditionally think quilts are for and what these quilts are actually doing.
1: And so such a serious topic, the last words of George Floyd. And I really don't want to say more because it's going to be explained beautifully as we spoke with these folks from their various homes in New Hampshire. And I started with Reverend Mark Koyama.
3: I was in my greenhouse working, planting some seeds on a spring morning, the end of May of 2020. It was a week after George Floyd had been killed. And I received a text from one of my parishioners, and she asked me if I could help her to gather fabric. Uh, so that she could make a Black Lives Matter banner that we could put on the front of the church. The church had been really activated by the murder of George Floyd and was interested in coming out, so to speak, uh, with their support of Black Lives Matter. But when she asked me that question, it spurred a kind of a chain reaction of thought process for me. I, I thought, well, I have a number of people in my church who like to work with fabric. So, this is not just something that this one person would be interested in. And then it occurred to me, that well, that's actually true of many churches. And then I, of course, thought of the AIDS quilt. So you can see how this cascade of of ideas is is developing right away. And then, later that day, I received an email from a group who was promoting police reform. And it being a week after George Floyd had been killed, they, they included in the text of the email the final words that uh, George Floyd had said as he was being pinned to the sidewalk there in Minneapolis and i had this almost out of body experience reading this text because it was laid out like a poem on the page you know as a poet i was reading it almost like a like a poem and then as halfway through reading it i realized that this was you know the most harrowing terrifying poem one could ever read, because one never has the consciousness when one's reading a poem that the person who's writing it is in the process of dying, and that these words were were his final plea that were not being listened to. So these two ideas came together in that moment for me, and I realized that this would be a powerful text that we could use for this notion of using quilting as a form of both of allyship and also of activism in this kind of crucial moment. And so I made a proposal to the anti-racism mission group, ministries group, which is part of New Hampshire United Church of Christ. And they endorsed the idea, and we then presented proposal to all of the churches in New Hampshire and nine churches returned and were were interested in in taking part so we broke those final words into eight stanzas essentially and we had an introductory quilt which says George Floyd's last words and a final quilt which says Black Lives Matter and then the eight quilts between the first and the 10th were the quilts that had the final words broken into stanzas
1: Harriet you mentioned yourself being a quilter as well as I am. Ka- as Kathy Tell me about when you first heard this idea and what went through your mind, what you felt. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Well,
4: I say uh uh-oh because I was on the... It was then called the Racial Justice Mission Group of the New Hampshire Conference. It has a new name, which is Anti-Racism Ministry Group, and I chair that. You know, there are not a lot of black people here. I don't see black people. I can walk around all day and never see another black person in exeter new hampshire never so i'm looking at this and thinking about how is this going to work how is this going to be coordinated i was just skeptical what i did was send this announcement make sure that it got to all of the churches in our conference 132 churches and then later on i also said well i'm a quilter i'd like to do it too what happened to George Floyd hit me in a very different way than would hit any person who was not black. It would have to. And I just attributed to, you might witness it, but I experience it. Right. And that's a little different. So I was experiencing it and everybody else was witnessing it. And the twain were not meeting because we didn't exactly share a purpose. I complained about the racism I confronted just making a quilt in a sanctuary, moved the quilt from the sanctuary and went home and finished it. It was very painful. It was actually traumatic. And now I've learned a lot from Kathy that I can share and create something amazing, not just in something that you see, but in something I feel in the experience of quilt making, because I've changed after having made two quilts for Kathy. And I'd never in my life made a quilt with anyone except my grandmother, who was a old black lady, right, which I am now. So this has been a transformative experience for me, feeling that I needed to actually leave the church to finish my quilting to a place where all I can think about is, what quilt will I make with Kathy next time? So it's been a really good thing for me. It it really solidified the ministry because I have
1: Mark and Kathy. Which of George Floyd's words were on the quilt you worked on?
4: So this is interesting... Quilt 9, which was the one that had 1,380 squares that are sort of ombre up, mm-hmm. and it says, I can't breathe in ragged ribbon. And in my church, they said, we want to do the quilt that says, I can't breathe, because it's just three words, and we'll be able to get it done fast. And I said, wait a minute, I can't breathe. <laughs> I have the most important words, and my people, my ancestors have been screaming those words for centuries. We've had the breath snuffed out of us in so many ways for centuries. Even growing up in a family that said, don't breathe, you'll get in trouble. If you confront a white person and you're not sure what's going on, don't breathe. I wanted, I can't breathe. I thought those were really important words. And the people who were going to sew them thought they were just three words, let's get them out of the way. So I did, I can't breathe. And those words to me mean everything.
1: It sounds like because the Anti-Racism Committee is part of your personal ministry, I'm just wondering what you felt spiritually, whether it's connection to God, to ancestors, or to the work you're doing while you were doing the quilting.
4: Well, I had some moments where I don't want to get too magical about it, but I, I know that I could feel the Godness. When I was working in the sanctuary, I had this whole giant church space, To work in. And I was literally building that quilt on a design board under a cross. And at one point, I kind of looked up because I don't use patterns. There's all kinds of beautiful stuff in the fabric itself. And so I was letting the fabric almost decide where and how it wants to be. And as I was doing that, I looked up at what was growing and there was a cross in the quilt and it's barely visible but it just grew. The quilt starts in the bottom of the quilt, and then it goes into the light, just some black liberation theology going into the light, and up just as you get into the light, there's a cross. And that really hit me. Mm. But it was also somewhat spiritually crushed because I couldn't get a connection with people about the racism and how much it hurts and how important it was to recognize it and sort of confess to it and work with it. I couldn't do that. And so it was kind of lonely spiritually because I was in a different place. I was in a place of an experience where others were in a place of witness. But going forward, when I worked with Kathy, that went away. I feel spiritually lifted when I'm with Kathy and Fabric.
1: Well, that's a great segue to ask Kathy first about her quilting and what you thought when you first heard about the project.
5: I first heard about the project because my pastor, the Reverend Cynthia Bagley at the United Church of Christ of Keene, forwarded to me the email that talked about this vision of creating 10 quilts to memorialize the words of George Floyd or to witness to those words. And again, we were in COVID and our church was really in a very, very much of a lockdown kind of situation. And so the only thing that I thought was that I don't want to do this all alone. And maybe there's a way I can ask the youth in our church to participate. They did participate, many of them, youth and their families in cutting out the lettering of the words on the quilt that we did and that was quilt number four in the series of ten. So on our quilt please shows up a few different times. Please man, I can't breathe. Just get up. I can't move. Yeah, mama is at the bottom of the quilt. It has nine or ten lines of lettering and I actually said that I was willing to take one of the quilts that had more words or more lettering because I felt like I had the skill, and with the youth help and the maybe the resources to be able to do a quilt that had more word content, we were given sort of a, a template of how we were to do these quilts, and and I followed the rules more or less. <laughs> and that was black background and and a certain color scheme on this quilt, and and my color scheme was sort of orange to yellow lettering. But on the back, I I used some of the border that I created to make a cross on the back of the quilt. And, and I felt like that was really an important piece. And I guess if if I were going to be doing it again, and what I've learned from Harriet, I wouldn't have followed the rules. And I would have maybe used, it, <laughs> used my own uh, instinct to actually include the cross on the front of the quilt, along with the lettering.
1: I'm wondering if you can talk to me about just the emotional or spiritual impact of th- this, you weren't just lettering a wise saying from a sage of the past. These are George Floyd's personal responses, his pleas, and, and the dying requests of, of a man.
5: First of all, the quilting experience during the summer of 2020 was quite isolating you know generally i think about quilting with others most of the time and we only had a couple of months to get these quilts completed we hoped to have them done by september so you know we were working june july august one of the things that i found myself doing was wanting to to read and learn more about the issues around racial injustices in our our country's history and learning just more so that I could understand what I was hearing in the news and trying to put that together. And the thing that I, I don't know that it happened during the summer, but it happened as we all gathered to bless the quilts at the Cathedral of the Pines. Then I really felt like I was part of this group of people who, who wanted to have some kind of a relationship in being allies. And we, I don't think we knew what that really even meant, but it was, it was powerful to be at the top of this mountain and seeing all the quilts together. Mark and Harriet said, you know, I think we need to continue this ministry some way and invited people to participate in that, continuing whatever it was going to be. And I said, yes, that's where developing really authentic relationships with Mark and Harriet made a huge impact on me and I think if there's any you know transformation that was for me developing relationships with people I had I didn't know before this whole project and yet who are very important to me and we have a shared mission that we're really trying to work together to bring this ministry along and help people to think about talk about the hard things what about anti-racism can they do to help change the world change how we each respond
1: thank you kathy mark tell me about the moment when all those quilts are finally in one place after those nine different churches have been working on them
3: i hate to say it but really when i first came up with this idea I was really not cognizant of the profound significance of of quilting. It was almost like an arts and crafts project in my mind a little bit. To, To even say that makes me feel bad about myself because really it's like I did not comprehend the gravity and the gravitas of what was happening until we brought them together. And then when we brought them together, it was like we had done this incredible thing you know it was almost like the hair in the back of my neck was standing up because it was like it was just one of those moments where it was like far far greater than the sum of its parts i didn't really know how profoundly the art of quilting communicates intentionality and prayerfulness living with those words for that that period of time was in a sense it was a bit like a spiritual practice because you take hours and hours and hours on one word. This is intentionally very, 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 very slow. And when you live with a word like claustrophobic, it took me all day to cut those letters out. I'll tell you, if you spend six hours with the word claustrophobic, it's a different experience than just saying. And then if you think about the context in which that word was said, it becomes even more intense. So
1: you've taken these quilts out as a ministry to different places, including where I saw them in Chicago, not that close to New Hampshire,
6: <laughs> and
1: they're <at> the <laughs> Parliament of the World's Religions. And just from the people who came by or who spoke with you at that event, for instance, what kind of conversations or reactions does that engender?
3: In the last year, the quilts have been to, you know, almost— Ninety places, but they've been all over the country. One of the things that we found is Harriet can speak to this too in a, in a really powerful way. Originally, when we sent out the quilts, we we insisted that we had to be with them, you know, at every at every venue. Then recently, we've said, okay, we'll we'll let them go a little bit, see what happens, and they they act as a kind of a very very interesting kind of liturgical and provocation in a lot of churches, and they do really amazing things at many, many different places. Do you want to talk about that, Harriet?
4: Yeah, I felt really proprietary about them and protective of them. I mean, even handing my quilts over to Mark for the first time, I felt like I was giving away children to a stranger. Mm. And what are you going to do with my quilt? And then when this whole installation came together, The first time they left us where we couldn't be right there with them, I think they went to Ohio, which is really far away. And I was really worried about the care they get. But I was also thinking, we were involved in the quilts. We're more important. We need to be there. No, it's not me talking about the quilts. It's not me dosing the quilts or guiding people in their experiences with the quilts is letting people and churches respond to the quilts. And so when I sat back and listen to the responses, I've been really blown away and I've learned so much. I mean, and people are so inspired. I listened to a group of people in Massachusetts and there was a pastor who did this wonderful meditation and then a woman who specifically got up and talked about how she was going to go into the Framingham Women's Prison, which is the oldest women prison in the country, and work on quilt projects in the prison. The quilts spoke to them. We didn't come up with that. And so when we sit back and let it go, it's the quilts that do the work. So when I was at the parliament, I was just sitting there in my chair and people would come by. They didn't know who I was. And I kind of roll up and say, how are you feeling? And that was the question. And I got all kinds of responses, but one that was really, really common. A quilt is a comforting icon, but these quilts also challenge you. And the juxtaposition of the challenge and the comfort is where the stress comes. People would say pain and beauty, it's the same thing. And I heard that as a common response. And then I started to see it in the faces of people. I didn't even have to speak to them. I could see people walk through and just sort of stop. And I just got off on watching where they stopped and what they were looking at and maybe try to imagine what they were thinking because I realized that if I interrupted what they were thinking, I was
1: interrupting. So interesting what well, you but, pointed out there about... We even call quilts comforters.
4: Yeah. Yes, <laughs> we do, don't we? But these are... Comforter
1: pain inducers. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. I'm Stephen Cap Perry, host of the In Good Faith podcast, and I want to tell you about another in our family of BYU Radio podcasts, an award-winning show with an award-winning host. This is Julie Rose on Top of Mind. Do you get turned off by the news because of how angry and polarizing and even depressing it can be? Doesn't anybody know how to have a civil conversation or way too competing ideas without a knee-jerk reaction that if you don't think what I think, you're a bad person? Check out the podcast, Top of Mind. They take one tough topic and they dive deep. And the goal is learning how to stay open and curious, even when you're confronted with different perspectives that may challenge us learning how to stick with the discomfort until we feel like we've actually learned and gotten some understanding. We may change our minds, we may not, but every episode will leave you feeling hopeful and empowered to become a better advocate for what does matter to you. Top of mind, listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to In Good Faith. I'm speaking with Rev. Mark Koyama, Dr. Harriet Ward, and Kathy Barrett Blair, all from the Sacred Ally Quilt Ministry in New Hampshire. So, this the Sacred Ally Quilt Ministry, is there something in the future or future goals? Uh, When you first talked, Mark, you had the AIDS quilt come to your mind, which, of course, covered hundreds and hundreds of feet when all of its various parts were assembled. And I'm just wondering what you see in the future for this.
3: We've had lots of ideas. And and I think that one of the things that we're hoping to do now is we're hoping to try and engage more churches and more institutions in the actual process of actually making quilts and confronting racism in this way. Because I think we've kind of stumbled upon a pretty remarkable mode of kind of getting into this difficult conversation that a lot of that a lot of particularly white people are, are very reticent to get into that con- into the conversation around race. I like to call it kind of a rhetorical sleight of hand, in a sense, and it has to do with this comfort challenge thing that we were just speaking of. When people come to see the quilts, they they think that quilt, as we as we have just said, is is a comforter, and so when they move through the exhibit, then something shifts for them. But what this does is it creates this opportunity for and a context for conversation. In this really quite remarkable way because of the prayerfulness and the kind of intentionality of the creation of the quilts. So another phrase that I like to use is multiple opportunities for transformation. And it comes with just viewing the quilts and and having conversations about them. But really the hoped for most intense form of transformation comes from actually making a quilt because it's, it's such an expression of intention and uh, shared purpose, right? When you have intention and shared purpose that kind of, that culminates in a symbolically resonant object, then you have something that is really quite powerful that you can point to in your church and you can say, you know, we've made this together and this is this is something that we learned from that process.
1: Kathy, as you think about being involved in these quilts, how has God surprised you in how you see God working in that
5: I personally think that God is all about love, and other people have been able to draw nearer to God and one another in experiencing the quilts and I'll tell you the youth group at my church witnessed the quilts, and um, the youth leader said to the young people walking around the. display of them stand next to the quilt that speaks to you and these dozen or more youth wandered throughout the quilts and then settled next to one each and then she asked them and and tell me why you chose the one you did and the responses from these young teenagers was so profound and i i was so moved by that experience uh, and, and see so much hope in the future with young people like this who, who can be moved and who are able to articulate what it is they're thinking and feeling. And I see hope in these relationships and the future of the church. And, and that's been really important uh, in my experience working with this whole ministry.
7: That was the Sacred Ally Quilts Ministry. So like Steve, I was able to go to Chicago and I could walk through these quilts. And Harriet mentioned she would go and she would talk to people. But when I went through, nobody was there. And it was just me alone with my thoughts and these quilts. And I walked through and I remember feeling just chills, my hair standing up, because you can read the words and you hear George Floyd realizing he's not going to make it. And he starts to reach out to people around him and he starts talking to his mom and then You see all of these words on the quilts, and they're really beautiful, but it's a really tragic and chilling experience.
1: And I was struck by the effect they've had. First of all, they say that making them was a contemplative experience, like cutting out the word claustrophobia for six hours. In this context, that's a reason to think. And, And then picturing Harriet there in the sanctuary with her quilt just sewing away and contemplating under the cross there. That's a pretty unforgettable image to me.
2: Right. That whole process of piecing a quilt, Harriet talks about it's sort of the quilt kind of speaks to you and you sort of move the fabric around. I've done that lots. I love to quilt. I love to be immersed in the color and the. it's a very tactile experience. And I never thought of it as a spiritual experience. And I appreciate Harriet saying that because it's made me rethink how I quilt and what I can be using quilt for, right, Mm -hmm. as an intentional prayerful space.
7: I do wish when I was in Chicago, I turned around and walked through the setup backwards because they talked about, like, the cross on the back of the quilt— Uh, But I didn't see that. I wish I would I'm glad we
1: got to hear about it. (laughs) A quick reminder, you can see those quilts from the project at saqm.org. That's for the Sacred Ally Quilt Ministry. And I was really struck, just as I look back on the whole thing, I think Mark summed it up for everyone when he said, until those quilts were all together in one place, outdoors in front of the Cathedral of the Pines, that he didn't comprehend the power of the project. I think that's happened to all of us. We get into something, we don't realize what it's going to do to us or for us. Another guest we met in Chicago is somebody that came up to you, Leah, at our In Good Faith table at our booth.
7: Yeah, she was one of the first ones to come up to the booth and say, oh, a podcast. I want to be on the podcast. And I kind of scrambled, okay, here's some paper and a pen, write down your email. And then I got back and I handed a whole list of emails to Ashton. You're welcome. And he had fun sorting through and he ended up choosing Sarah to interview.
6: She's a very enthusiastic person. And that shown through when I started researching her and looking at her website. And I was immediately fascinated by her and knew we had to have her on the show. And she was willing to come on and we had
1: an amazing conversation. She's one of just a few guests we've had who come from the Quaker tradition originally. And even though she has sort of traveled physically and spiritually throughout the world and, and traditions. She draws a lot on that and I hope people listen for this amazing childhood experience with God she's going to talk about. Sarah Jolina Walcott has a degree from Union Theological Seminary and the Institute of Developmental Studies at the University of Sussex and she's a consultant. We're here, we'll hear more about who she consults with. She was a traveling singer in India and has been a correctional chaplain It's quite a varied resume. And I I love hearing about her spiritual journey.
0: So I grew up in a small house on the edge of a great big hill, which was on the edge of a great valley. in what we now refer to as California in the East Bay Area. And, you know, it was one of those homes that you could open the back gate and you go out into land that my parents had helped to keep from development so it, was, it became a park a local parkland and i would often go out and wander around in the hills and the area was used to keep horses and cows and my parents and i would often take walks there in the evening when the moon was high or as moon was rising the sun was setting and we would look across the the bay at the twinkling lights of san francisco And I always had a very strong sense of home and belonging. And those were the places that my father and and my mother as well, both of them talked to me and told me stories about God and invited me to, both explicitly and implicitly, shared with me their love of the divine in the natural world. And um, I now can say that many people, I think, have very mystical experiences of God when they're young kids in nature. It's a pretty common story. And I certainly had my first kind of profound spiritual experience when I was like probably six or seven, and it was in those hills, lying on the ground and looking up at the moon. And I just felt such a like deep presence of the Holy Spirit all around me. And that point for me, the, the name was less important. It was like a feeling. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. A feeling of devotion. And then my family was Quaker. I come from a long Quaker family. And so those connections were nurtured in the context of my of my Quaker faith, of my family.
1: I, I'm, I'm tying together two images here. One is uh-huh. the, the beautiful image of you as a child lying back on the earth, mm, mm, looking mm, up at the mm-hmm. sky and sensing this support or, or mm. connection. Mm-hmm. And that's that's nature. But then with people to go to Quaker meeting, and if this has been done as the ones I've attended, often they're sitting in silence until someone mm-hmm. feels moved upon by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that same sort of connection in those meetings as you as you did in the canyon?
0: Oh, it's such a beautiful question. Um, I did, and I think I was very fortunate that I did. I don't know if Everyone does when they go to whatever their family's religious community is, they may not feel that same connection. I did. And I could actually, like, I remember when a, probably at a similar age, definitely before I was 10, like sitting with the adults in the meeting. And so there was one of those oriental carpets on the floor. And it was just so happened that, like, literally every person's feet was on a different flower in the carpet. Uh huh. And it was like this profound moment for me. And I was just in the depth of the silence and the the holiness of the spirit. And I gave my first ministry and it was about the spirit of God is like these intertwining like ropes of the carpet that are connecting all the flowers. And we are the flowers and the spirit is the vine that's connecting us. And now I have some like biblical imagery around that. But at that point, it was really just taking what was literally in front of me with that carpet and that was, I think, a moment when I really connected my internal experience with this social community with the divine
1: and I'm sure some of the the adults there were thinking out of the mouth of babes because <laughs> because they had sat with their feet on that carpet many, many times without having <laughs> many, that many same
0: times <laughs> many you know, children often offer profound ministry. I think they often see the things that adults were just so used to it. And it's right there, it's right in front of us.
1: When did the connection you felt with the earth start to turn into this lifetime commitment?
0: So it was always there. In high school, I was very concerned about climate change, as were many of my peers and my parents were local environmental activists. So it was always there, it was always present. And and it didn't take that long. <laughs> before I realized that, A, most of the conversations were dominated by people who were not bearing the brunt of the problems. Mm. The people who were trying to solve the problem were not the ones who were experiencing the problem firsthand. And that has racial and class dimensions in our society. And two, it was just kind of became clear that this was a, a problem of worldview and mindset and that climate change was also not just a technological or policy crisis but a spiritual crisis and that led me down this sort of really kind of set of rabbit holes so I was aware of that and then I also had a call to ministry and those two things were kind of happening at the same time right I sort of was seeing I was reshaping how I understood ecological challenges in our society at the same time that I was having my own sort of call to ministry grow. And for those of you who know much about Quakers, you know that Quakers don't have a professional ministry. And so I did a lot of service for the Society of Friends as a young person, and it was very fulfilling. But there wasn't a clear pathway for me as someone who felt a very clear call to ministry. And so for a long time... Those things were kind of intention. And then when I was working in India, you know, skip forward several years, a whole bunch of different things happened. And one of them was that I became a singer. I realized that what it meant for climate change to be a spiritual problem, a spiritual challenge, was that we had to engage in the question of what is it that sustains us. And the answer to that question could be found in music and art and dance and culture and tradition and ritual and spiritual community. And those things were all connected to each other. That, for me, was kind of like my aha moment.
1: I would just have to maybe interject and say a lot of people would say, no, no, it's about technological innovation and turning down our taps. Yeah, that's what I used to think of, too. And so, (laughs) Yeah, so interesting to have have this open up to you. You've really codified some of these concepts in very interesting and memorable ways. And I wonder if you would explain what it means to you, these concepts of remembering and re-enchanting.
0: So I, I went to Union Theological Seminary. I went to Divinity School after India. And whilst there, I started talking with indigenous people here on this continent who traced the histories of climate change to colonization. And in all of my studies, no one had really traced the histories of climate change to colonization or to the doctrine of discovery. it, It made no sense to me. So I did a lot of historical and theological history, church history work to better understand what they meant by that and to understand how climate change is connected to the histories of colonization. And then in the process of doing that, when I was engaging with really some terrible histories, like very violent histories of the church, and doing so in seminary, right, in a mm-hmm. very Christian context, and doing deep biblical exegesis at the same time, I kept on having these, so, like it was somatic, it was emotional. The process of thinking about where we came from was not simply a, like a verbal narration, it was an embodied experience and it was spiritual like i was reconstituting how i understood the bible and how i understood god through engaging with these histories differently which was completely unexpected to me because i was trying to to have my relationship with god be the primary thing in my intellectual research i had to engage with research differently i had to engage with the historical questions i was asking differently I had to have a level of like how I was embodying, how I understood the divine, how I understood myself needed to change. And I started referring to that process, not just as re-narrating, but as remembering. And I started teaching as I realized that like, you know, remembering, which in some ways, I think it's one of the most common across the different faith traditions command is a command to remember. Right, you know, you drink this wine, you eat this bread in remembrance of me, as Jesus says, and was was, is for many the communion ritual um, in many different Christian traditions. And you know, in Islam, you have something very similar. You pray five times a day because Allah knows that the human being is so fragile and forgetful. You know, you pray five times a day to remember God, to remember that you are loved, to remember that you are held. Mm. And so much of the Jewish prayer is a prayer of remembrance. And so the main rituals are rituals of remembrance. So I began working with this understanding of remembrance and remembering as a somatic experience. And that we need to engage both with remembering our deep connection to the Holy One. And that part of that is also remembering how we got disconnected and the multiple ways that this connection has happened. And you kind of need to do both.
1: You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. You know, there are no perfect people and there are no perfect families and no perfect relationships. So how do we be good people and have good relationships and good families? How do we do better at what is most important to us? I'm here to tell you about The Lisa Show. Another in the family of BYU radio podcasts. Lisa Valentine Clark is a comedian, a believer, a single mother. She delves into the challenges and the relationships that shape all of our lives. Whether we're talking about parenting, mental health questions, social issues, being a caregiver, she and her council of moms tackle the topic. Yes, you'll hear from experts, but you'll also hear from the people who have been digging the trenches. She'll help you figure out this thing called life with lots of laughs along the way. It's The Lisa Show. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to In Good Faith. I'm speaking with Sarah Jolina Walcott of Sequoia Samanvaya. You help people rediscover the spiritual connection to the earth that you mm-hmm. feel our society has lost. You just were referring mm. to that. Is it possible to do that with secular organizations, it seems like you would have to bring in a spiritual connection. What kind of organizations would call on you to help them do better at, at what they do mm-hmm. or or to reestablish and remember those connections?
0: So I think reestablishing our connectivity to earth and to all of God's creation is an inherently spiritual process. That said, I have found that there are people who don't experience it as such. So I just want to like say that there are, there are those who don't experience that at all. And I sometimes I think that's a question of linguistics. Uh, like people have different names for their experience. And then sometimes I think that some people just don't don't have a felt embodied experience of the divine. So I think what it means to experience the divine love entails experiencing our connectivity to all beings and to all of creation. And what it means to experience our connectivity to all beings also entails experiencing God's love for us.
1: On the face of that, that sounds very, very Buddhist. Mm.
0: it is it's also very christian
1: yeah but but i think i think you are (laughs) you're right that we have lost that idea
0: yeah it's there it's all there it doesn't take much to see it once you're looking for it and so when i'm especially when i'm working with christian catholic organizations what what's happening is we're kind of rereading scripture in order to see what's right in front of us
1: saint francis knew this
0: St. Francis, and but like it's in the Genesis, mm. God moves over the face of the waters and looks into the depth. And the waters are present at creation. The waters are bearing witness and maybe even actively engaging with God in the act of creation. That they're there. They deserve being mentioned. And so much of the creation story is not as much about humans as it is about the plants and the animals and the seeds. So, like, within, like, these core texts, Jesus is constantly going into the wilderness and using agricultural imagery. And you could see Jesus as a man of his watershed. Mm. He stays in his watershed throughout his ministry and throughout his lifetime. And he's constantly going to the wilderness to, to talk to his father.
1: Some people are afraid of this, to open their minds to the truths and the knowledge of other faith traditions. But you've been open to that and especially drawing from them their wisdom about the connection to the creation.
0: Quakers as a whole tend to be very open to multiple traditions. Like it's pretty common that you'll have a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of experience. And have had profound spiritual connections in those other traditions before or even during their time with Quakers. So I grew up in a community that uplifted that capacity. And I was like very, very, very Quaker, by which I had no interest in any other tradition. When I was in India, I had a couple of experiences that I think of it as like expanding my listening. Uh I could still hear Jesus, but I could hear other beings that were from like a different it's like a different sound. <laughs> it's it's It felt like hearing notes I hadn't heard before or hearing like music I hadn't heard before.
1: Interesting comparison. You speak a lot about ancestry and ancestors too on, on mm. your website and in your work.
0: Our ancestors are so important. Where do we come from? Who our ancestors are informs us. It doesn't determine who we are but it informs us. And so when people are often working with particularly some of the more challenging histories of colonization, and they're looking at their own family or they're all looking at their own family's relationship to land and to water and to inheritance and to how do they relate to the land differently? Like it doesn't take long before they start looking at how do their ancestors relate to land and water and how do we want to relate to how our ancestors related to things? It's really common that individuals will talk to me about their family. And for my own family and my own journey of retelling history, I started looking at my own family history differently. And I come from some of the founding fathers of the United States of America, on my father's side, and understanding what they did and how they did it in a different key has really helped me understand how I can relate to land and water and to the divine in a different way. And so in part because I've done that with my own family history, I help other people. And so I talk about this ecological family history. How do we tell stories about where we come from that incorporate lands and waters and the peoples of lands and waters, indigenous peoples and people from other parts, different parts of the world? How do we incorporate a multiplicity of stories into our own story
1: and you've got me thinking about not only people but also places you talk about the Mm -hmm. ecological situation throughout the old testament for instance you hear about and we have been promised a land or i return Mm -hmm. to the land of my father's there's this big connection
0: absolutely absolutely and we carry the story of the land and the history of the land in our bodies like everyone does And it's in our food traditions. It's literally in our genes. Um, And for some people, when they return to the places their ancestors are from, they have this immediate recognition. And it's like they know the land. There's a little bit that I don't think I will ever fully understand. um, But I think there's a poetic beauty in that. I think of it as how do your bones connect to the stones of where you're from? And of where you are now. That as people connect to land, it's one of the things that can be most helpful and most healing is connecting with with land and water. Figuring out how to do that well in a society where connectivity to land often looks like property ownership can be really difficult.
1: Yeah.
0: When people have the experience of having land or water that really calls to them, the value of honoring that. Mm. And going there, visiting it, moving there, it means different things for different people. And letting the external landscape speak to your internal landscape.
1: How has your experience, since a very young age, a connection with God? How has that changed or deepened or, or maybe for a while been elusive in the course of your life? What has that journey been like?
0: You know, I sometimes think of it as like a door that's always open. Sometimes I might be further from the door. But it's always open. It's never closed. Mm. Sometimes when my life has been difficult, sometimes that sense of the divine, is like the thing that kind of keeps me going or keeps me, you know, when I've been traveling overseas or feeling very alone, you know, very separate from from my family or very separate from my own lands, the lands that I feel connection to and my friends. Like that connection to to God has been, that which carries me and comforts me, as well as that which spurs me on, you know, like, uh, like pushes me a little bit. Mm, mm. <laughs> so I've always felt it. I think there have been times when, like these days, my access points have changed. The prayers that I have said have shifted over time or the songs have shifted. The, the places where that's easy for me to find it. So there was a while when I had a hard time feeling God in a church building. I felt God in the wilderness, or I felt God like in meetings, in Quaker meetings. If I went into a church building, I didn't feel it. And then I was working in a church. <laughs> I was actually at the front of the church one time, and I was giving a sermon. And I was just sitting, and I was waiting for everyone to come into that church building. The lighting was such that as people opened the door of the church and each person came in, it looked like every person was just surrounded with light. They were backlit. And I was so moved. I was like, oh, maybe this is how God feels when when God looks at us. That God sees us surrounded by this, like just light coming out of us. And we don't always see that, but it's actually always there. And that was one of several moments that actually led me to experience the divine in churches. But I'm also just grateful to have that, like, glimpse into how beautiful God sees us, you know?
1: That was Sarah Jolena Walcott. And you can find out more about Sarah Jolena at her website, com. S-A-R-A-J-O-L-E-N-A. One of the things
6: I really liked about her interview was the sense of responsibility she has and the sense of rethinking And I think that, you know, she codifies her re-enchanting and remembering. And I think she could do the same thing with these words, responsibility and rethink. And I think it relates to the quilts um, in the Sacred Ally Quilt Ministry as kind of challenging the way we look at things and challenging the way what we feel our duty is. The way that the Sacred Ally Quilt Ministry made these quilts in order to challenge ideas and challenge the way we think about quilts, just as the same way Sarah Jolina challenges the way we think about the earth and and our spiritual connection to it, and that we have this responsibility to care for each other and for the earth.
1: What I wrote down is the people who can make the change often aren't the people being most affected by it. So it is taking sort of a responsibility to watch out, not just for ourselves, but for others. As well. And I loved the her spiritual journey, which she said for her, it's like a door is always open. Sometimes she's really close to it. Sometimes she's a little further. But that that was a really comforting,
2: yeah,
1: to draw a word from our episode, a comforting image to me of this door always being open wherever you are in relation to it, that you could move toward it.
2: I think one of the things that really stood out to me from our friends from the Sacred Ally Quilt Ministry, Harriet talks about there's a difference between witnessing and experiencing. And even if we, as outsiders, are witnessing, we need to be attentive to what's happening for the person who actually experiences it. And we need to be compassionate and thoughtful about how we engage with them.
7: Something that stuck with me from this episode was Sarah's explanation of the Quaker openness to tradition— viewing religion as an individual experience. It reminds me of the Baha'i tradition where they find truth in different places. She talks about feeling God in nature as well as in the Quaker meetings and eventually in church. And if
2: you're interested in what mm. Sarah Jolena is talking about, we actually have a previous episode on nature, episode 133, Nature and the Divine. And we found out that Sarah Jelena and Victoria Lortz, who's a guest, are actually friends. And Victoria Lortz has a Church of the Wild where you can learn the teachings of Jesus in nature um, to help help you in that spiritual practice.
1: This episode was produced by Heather Bigley and Ashton Rowan. Our production team also includes Leah King and Katarina Martinich. Our post-production sound designers are Mark Hansen and Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If interfaith understanding means something to you, be sure and leave a comment or a review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word. Find us on Twitter at ingoodfaithpod and on Instagram and Facebook at ingoodfaithpodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.